Peace be with you. Welcome to Sojourn. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here. It is uh, both a joy and uh, a privilege, an honor uh, to open the Word of God with you this morning. Um, and if you're a guest, I'll just reiterate the, the welcome that Cole already gave you. We're so glad uh, that you're here and that you would choose uh, to join with us. Um, before we get into the Life Together sermon series, I, I've sort of gone back and forth on whether or not I should, I should say anything and, and just kind of feel like the, the Lord said yes. And so, um, so forgive me for the mini sermon before the sermon. Um, but uh, I know for some of us this week has been, uh, or maybe the past couple of weeks, or, and really probably the last couple of years, um, ha- have been one of some turmoil um, in just everything that our country is going through, and, and particularly uh, uh, this, this past Supreme Court nomination has been a particularly divisive in our country, and I, I don't think it's foolish of me to think that that could also be affecting us in the room this morning, and so here's the reality. Um, this morning, you're probably in, in, in one of two groups, maybe three, maybe three, um, but you're probably in one of these two groups. You either came in this morning and you're, you're rejoicing, you're gleeful um, because of what took place um, this past weekend, and, and you, you feel like your, your guy won, like what you, know, what you voted for, what you wanted to, to come to pass came to pass, and, um, and so maybe that's you this morning. And then for some of us, we might be on the other end of that spectrum. We might be walking in just really asking a lot of questions about the, this sort of larger group of people, this country that we belong to, and, and the ways that it is expressing itself currently, and, and, and what does that mean for us? And, and maybe there's some, some despair, um, even, that we're walking in in light of some of those things this morning. And, and, uh, and the third group, maybe you just don't care. I, I hope that's not you, but, um, but I confess that's the group I want to belong to. Um, uh, all that to say... Uh, I think there's a word for, for all of us this morning. Um, God's very, very clear um, that we, believers, Christians, followers of Jesus, so if that's you in the room this morning, then you are not to put your hope in the governing systems of this world. You're not. And so whether you're overly excited and gleeful because you feel like you've gained something through this, then you need to be rebuked. Your hope is not in that. Your hope is in the one who is above all earthly courts. Supreme Court, my you-know-what. There's one Supreme Court, there's one Supreme Ruler, and His name is Jesus, and it's Him who we worship, and it is Him through whom we have the power that we need for day-to-day life in this country or the next. And if you're coming in and you're in despair and you're asking all of those questions, listen, brother, sister, your king is still on the throne. He has not left you. He will not leave you. He's promised, in fact, by his own word that he would not leave you, nor would he forsake you. Make no mistake about it. There are many other more treacherous, more treasonous, more despotic rulers in the world today. And I don't say that to make this sort of an equivalence thing of like, just be grateful for what you have. But I will say this. The Christians in those countries are trusting in the same Lord that you're called to trust in. And we should take encouragement from them. And we should know that no matter what happens, no matter what happens in our country, our Lord is sovereignly orchestrating all of history for His glory, and He has invited you into it by the grace of His Son, through the power of His Spirit, according to His love for you. And that is what is true 
of you this morning. That is what is true for you this morning. And that is what will be true from now until eternity past. And so my hope and my prayer this morning is that we would be able, even just for a few moments, to take our eyes off of the troubles of this world, that we would truly turn our eyes upon Jesus and that the things of this world would grow strangely dim to us so that we might be just caught up in the light of God's glory and His grace. That's why we're here this morning, brothers and sisters. And so again, no matter how you feel in response to the things that have happened this past week, this past year, this past couple of years, My hope is that that is what we will behold this morning and that that is what we will be captured by and that it is that that we will be satisfied in or pulled out of despair by. With that said, let's jump into the the real sermon. (laughs) I promise not to go too long in light of that. Let Let me pray. That seems like an appropriate time to take a break. (laughs) Father, thank you for this morning. Again, God, we're grateful to be gathered together in the light of your glory and of your grace. And I pray, Father, that we will behold you. And I pray, Lord, that as we behold you in the glory of your embodied, dead, resurrected, now ascended Son, Jesus, we would, empowered by the Spirit, cry out, Daddy God. Abba, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would be worshipped and adored this morning. I pray, Father, that in your word we would be brought to absolute surrender in light of how wonderful, truly wonderful you are, God. So satisfy us this morning, consume us this morning, fill us this morning by and with your spirit for the sake of your name and fame in this time and in this place. May we live well in light of what you've done on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, <clears throat> Life Together series. Um, Cole was right. We do this uh, once a year where we just kind of think through what it means for us not only to be a local congregation, Sojourn, Mont- Sojourn Montrose, but to belong to a family of congregations Sojourn Houston, so which is comprised of Sojourn Heights, Sojourn Galleria, Sojourn Spring Branch, and soon to be also Sojourn East End. And so um, we're excited to be a, a part of that family, and there's a lot of things that we share um, with that family, and one of them is this, this sort of common mission, this common identity, these common principles, um, common doctrine, um, and we're going to jump into that and into what it means for us to live in light of those things. And so for nearly 2,000 years... The doctrine of the Trinity has been widely regarded as an essential, foundational Christian doctrine. It's the Bible's preeminent revelation, right? That God is one, but that God is Father, that God is Son, and He is Holy Spirit. He is three persons, and yet He exists in perfect and distinct union. And as we'll see, this truth is built into the gospel itself. So today is week one of a three-week sermon series exploring the relevance of the Trinity for our everyday Christian life together. Because what we'll come to find out is that our life together grows out of, flows out of, God's life together. 
Now, some of us may not have any idea what I mean when I say the word Trinity, right? Some of us may have heard that word a thousand times, and we still don't know what I say or what I mean when I say the word Trinity. And listen, we're not going to delve into all the sort of different um, complexities of the Trinity. The reality is that it's hard to explain, right? It's hard to explain. It's, it's, it's paradoxical at first glance, right? How can something be three and one at the same time, right? And listen, there's been a lot of bad metaphors used to try to explain it um, rationally so that it might make sense to us. But listen, but nothing, nothing quite gets to it. And so what we have to do ultimately is just lean upon the Scriptures and know, trust, and believe that where our ability to reason, where our ways do not make sense in the context of what God has written for us, we need to know that His ways are not our ways. We need to know that God maybe, just maybe, has the ability to operate outside of our ability to reason Him. And so when the Bible says that God is three and God is one, He's three and He's one. Now, my hope and my prayer in this first of the three sermons is that we'll let the Word explain to us as best as our minds can hold it what the Trinity is, and how the Trinity is at work for us. How the Trinity is at work for us. With that in mind, let's read uh, the three verses again, and then we'll just break them down verse by verse. It says this in verse 4 of Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons or sons and daughters. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, there's a lot that's at play in these three verses. So again, let's just go verse by verse. And listen, if you were going to memorize uh, uh, any set of verses in the Bible, I would, I would argue that this should be in contention um, for, for sort of your top one or two or three or five or whatever you know, list you want to make. But verse 4, he says this, but when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, and listen, we don't have time to, to sort of do all of the background work that we need to do, but What we can know from what Paul writes here is that God had in mind a specific moment in history. And when that time came to pass, it was in the fullness of that time. It was in that story that God was writing. It was in that exact moment of history, history, his story, that God did something. Right? So it make it, Paul makes it clear, this story, this thing that you and I are wrapped up in, this is something that God both initiated and is crafting and will consummate. When the fullness of time had come, what did He do? God sent forth His Son. He sent His Son. A couple of things that we can know from just those few words, God sent forth His Son. Right? It implies a few things. It implies, one, that, that God is a father. He has to be a father in order that he would have a son, but it also means something about the son, right? It means that the son existed before he was born of Mary. So Jesus pre-exists all of this, right? 
God sent forth His Son. And so again, what Paul is subtly and yet clearly making available to us this morning is that Jesus in Himself was divine. He pre-exists, right? He is, the, he is the us in let us make man in our own image in Genesis 1. That's Jesus. He's, he's there. He's in that time. He's in that place. And it's Him that God sends forth. He sends Him forth to do what? To be born of a woman. And so at the same time that Paul is communicating for us Jesus' great divinity, his godness, his membership in this three-in-one God, he also says Jesus is fully human. He's born of a woman. He enters the world through a womb. He is essentially and intrinsically God, and He has become essentially and intrinsically human. And as a human, Jesus was what? Born, not only of woman, but He was born under the law. This is important. This is important. He was born under the law, which means that as a human, Jesus was born a Jew, which means that he was born with the responsibility to uphold the law that God had given to his people. Every ounce of it, right? There is nothing in the law that he was, uh, that he was abdicated from or that he was released from or that he was not responsible to. He was born of woman, born under the law, responsible for all of it. which is important because of what he's going to say in the next verse. This is what he says in the first part. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem those who were under the law. To redeem. That's a loaded word. And again, we could trace the idea or, or the concept of redemption throughout the whole Bible, Right? God is always redeeming. God is always doing... So what does that word mean? When we hear the word redemption, we should think of this this concept of being bought with a price, of something being bought back, of something being secured by a price. And so Jesus, God's Son, was sent forth by God in the fullness of time to redeem, to set free, to rescue by paying a price those who were under the law. And so He came to set us free. He came to set us free, but He didn't just come to set us free, right? Keep reading. This is the latter half of the verse. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, sons and daughters. And so Jesus sets us free, but then he, he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just set us free, but then He brings us home. He brings us to the place that we will belong, a home that He also happens to inhabit, a home that He belongs to, a family that He belongs to, a father that He calls father. And this is super important language. 
Because again, if nothing else, Paul is making it superbly clear here that if we are adopted, then we are intentionally saved. Meaning we are not saved because we've been rewarded in response to our right faith. We've been adopted. We've been pulled out of the slums of our sin, brought into the glorious household of God Himself, and not only brought in to be there or exist there, but to exist there as sons and daughters of God Himself. So what happens when that adoption takes place? Well, verse 6 tells us, it says this, And because you are sons, because you are daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So because God the Father sends the eternal Son to be born of woman and under the law, God sends us the Spirit. And it's through the presence of His Spirit that we are then enabled to cry out to God, just like Jesus cried out to Him. We're able to cry out to God and call Him, Dearest Dad, Abba, Father. Again, hold on to that language. It's important because no one, no one in Jewish culture at this time would have used that kind of endearing term of God. It would have been considered sacrilegious. It would have been considered disrespectful. It would have been considered improper to call God Abba, Father. And yet Paul says that in light of the Father sending the Son, now the Spirit has been sent into our hearts and He enables us. In fact, our reflex to Jesus' work on our behalf is to look at God and cry out, Father, Father. So let's be clear about what we see happening in this passage. We see all three persons of the Trinity acting together, acting in concert, acting in unison in their respective roles to work redemption and adoption for His enslaved people, for for us, for you and me. If you've called upon the name of Christ in the room this morning, this is what transpired. You may not have been able to put language on it. You may not have been able to understand it fully, but this is what took place. God, in the fullness of time, sent forth His Son to be born of woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those of us who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are adopted, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So if you've cried out to God, if you've called Him Father, that's what took place. That's what happened. Now there's so much at play. The Father's will adopting, the Son's work redeeming, the Spirit's power anointing us as God's very heirs. There's many things that could be said about this text. Many, many, many things that could be said about this text. But in the context of this series, my hope is that we're laying a foundation that shows us that the Trinity is, always has been, and always will be at work for, at work in, and at work through us, through His people. And this week, what we're seeing clearly is the Trinity at work for us. 
salvation is not Jesus' purview alone, that the gospel is not Jesus' purview alone, but there's a Father acting in and through the work of the Son, empowered, emboldened by the Spirit, whom Jesus now sends as a greater gift, better even than His own presence. And that that gospel does not start with the simply the purging of my sins, but starts with His creation of all things and His ultimate redemption of all things, where there will be no more pain, where all things will ultimately be fully redeemed from all that sin has done in the history of mankind. And that all of that is wrought in and through a Father, Son, and Spirit acting together, one God in unison, in three persons, for His people, for us. So that's what we see here. Very clearly, the Trinity at work for us, and that matters. And why does it matter? Um, well, there's a couple of things that I, I would just want to point out. Again, um, we'll get heavier into what it means for the Trinity to be at work in us next week. We'll talk about what it means for the Trinity to be at work through us in the weeks to follow. And so right now, we just want to sit and we want to bask in God's work for us. And so God works for us as Father, doesn't He? God works for us as Father. A.W. Tozer famously said that whatever comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Whatever we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so let me just ask you the question. When you hear the mention of God, what would you say? What image fills your heart and your head when you think about who God is? The question is important because the reality is that all of us, if we're, especially if we're in this room this morning, all of us have some kind of answer to that question. Who is God? Everybody has a go-to thought when they think of Him. And listen, again, if we're in the room this morning and we're Christians, we want that picture, we want that image to be true of Him. We don't want to mess with that. We should strive to ensure that that picture is what is borne out for us in God's Word, in His self-revelation to us, right? So Michael Reeves, uh, he's an author, theologian, uh, in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, says this. He says, The most foundational thing in God is not some abstract quality, but the fact that He is Father. Let's soak in that for a moment, right? God really is our Father. That is what this Scripture attests to. That is what all of Scripture ultimately attests to. And it is what our theology demands. And so my question is, is that our chief image of Him? Is it? My guess is probably not. And I say that not because of something I've seen in you, but because of chiefly what I'm thinking in my head. The pastor, right, who should sort of have all of his theological T's crossed and I's dotted. Right? Many of us probably tend to think first, at least, at least first, of God as creator, right? We see him as strong and mighty and the cause of everything that exists and 
listen, that's true. Those things are true about God. But it doesn't get to the heart of who God is. It doesn't get to his essence. Think about it this way. What was God doing before creation? You ever thought about that? Like, you know, if you just... Nobody really has the leisure anymore to just sit around and think about dumbfounding questions like that, right? Where like, I'll just check my notifications. But really, what, like, what was God doing before creation? No, I'm guessing nobody has an answer, but here's the reality. If God, in his essence, like if he were essentially creator, it would mean that he needs his creation to be who he is, right? Can't be a creator without a creation, It would mean he needs his creation to be who he is. The same goes for God as a ruler. He would need someone to rule. The same goes for God as a judge, right? He would need someone or something to judge. Each of these titles are accurate descriptions of God, but they fail to show us God in his essence. Each of them depends on something else to be the case. And so we must ask Who is God in himself? Who is God apart from anything else? The answer to that question is that he is Father. He is Father from before creation. And this is where the biblical revelation of the Trinity begins to unfold its wonder for us. Before anything else, before there was anything else, there was God. There was God, the everlasting Father, who eternally was loving His Son in the unceasing fellowship of the Spirit. That's what God was doing before creation. He was delighting in His Son in the unceasing fellowship of the Spirit. In this sort of beautiful, relational, harmonic, shalom-filled dance of existence. That's as good as I could do, guys. That's what he was doing. Eternally loving the Son in the fellowship of the Spirit. This is who God is. He is Father. And this is who he is for us, which is what's wild about Galatians chapter 4. Is that what God has always been, he has also now been or is and always will be for us. If you've called upon Christ for salvation, God is your Father, and you belong to His family with Jesus and the Spirit. But here's the thing. Some of us, right, some of us, when we use the word Father, it's like that, that does not bring up positive imagery for you. Right? So you can say, okay, God's a Father, but my Father was horrible, so what does that, you know, what does that mean? I guess the question we have to ask, if God is Father at His essence, then, then what kind of Father is He? Again, we, we have it put on display for us in Galatians 4, don't we? Listen, I think many of us tend to think of God as the Father with an eternal, like, furrowed eyebrow, you know? Like, He, he just looks at you like this all the time. He's always just waiting for that moment, right, when you screw up, because it only happens once. Like, he's just waiting for you to to screw up. 
all, you, like you're, you're, just all, you're kind of always walking around with like, I know he's mad about something, but I don't, you know, I don't know what it is this time. It's not as patently obvious this time around, but, but I know he's mad about something. And he's always just staring us down, taking account of every misstep, chronicling them for us, right, so that he can control us with our shame, right? But this doesn't come close to how the Bible describes God as our Father. Here's the thing. In 1 Timothy 1.11, Paul writes about the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The blessed God. Blessed God. And here's the thing. It's one of those introductory passages, so it's one of those ones that we read and go, yeah, 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 blessed God, okay, get to the like, stuff I'm supposed to do. But blessed God, nothing in between them, not blessed of God, not blessed with God, not blessed God, blessed God. The Greek word behind the English blessed is the same word for happy. And so the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy calls God the happy God, the blessed God. So it's not enough for us to think of God as Father. He is a happy Father. He is not the Father who's in a perpetual rage. He's the Father who is glad at heart, glad in the glory of His Son and the communion that they share. He is the Father who said of Jesus with no hesitation, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, well pleased. And here's what's crazy. It's not just Jesus that God the Father says that about. Do you know who else he says it about? If you're a Christian in the room this morning, if you've called upon the name of Christ for salvation, then he says it about you. He says it about you. Like, can you like, God, in the fullness of his time, send his son so that we might be what? Redeemed and adopted. That means that the same pleasure that God feels towards His Son Jesus is the same pleasure that He now feels towards us because of Jesus. Like, how many of you have asked this question before? I, I, I'm one of them, so, and it might just be me, but how many of you have asked this question before? And you don't have to raise your hands unless you just want to. Um, uh, maybe there's an amen with it. Um, <clears throat> how could God ever be happy with me? Right? We look back at our day or maybe our month or our year or our life, right? And we just go, how in the world could God be happy with me? Well, here's your answer. Here's your answer, right? Every ounce, every single ounce of God's anger that could ever have been directed at you, all of it, Every single bit was laid upon Jesus at the cross. Every ounce of God's wrath that He ever could have directed at you, every single tiny atom of it was laid upon Jesus at the cross. And so, God both freely and justly feels pleasure toward you. He feels pleasure toward you. 
He is well pleased. That's what happened on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was truly forsaken. The second person of the eternal Trinity was relationally alone. In that moment, the Trinity was as it had never been and never will be again. The unity of God was fractured by our sin, broken open in order that we might be welcomed into His love. Welcomed into His life. And it's because Jesus suffered that reality that no follower of Christ will ever have to suffer that reality. So God works for us as Father. He also works for us as Son. After all, it's by His work, it's by His life, it's by His upholding of the law perfectly that we are not only redeemed but adopted. But God doesn't only work for us as a father. He doesn't only work for us as son. He works for us as spirit as well, right? It's because of Christ's mediation to the Father on our behalf that all that is Jesus's now becomes ours and we are welcomed into the very life of the Trinity, right? It's the son's sacrifice that reconciles us to God, the Father, and that involves more than God simply saying, okay, we can hang out now. This reconciliation sweeps us up into the very life of this Trinity, into this communion. We get brought into that, right? That's what the Bible is telling us here, that the Spirit of God is in us, that it dwells inside of us, like that it's part of who we are now. We've been so attached to Jesus that His Spirit now indwells us as if we were Jesus. you believe that? Think about that. The persons of the Trinity are united in their being by mutual indwelling. And Paul tells us that the Spirit indwells us too, if we're Christians. That is an astounding mystery. One that we will not fully comprehend until glory. And yet Paul tells us that it's a meaningful truth for us to grab a hold of as much as we can. And so brothers and sisters, this is our God. This is who we worship. This is who we come to behold on Sunday mornings. This is who we discuss and devour and engage with in our parish gatherings. This is who we seek to communicate to the neighbor. Uh, the neighborhood around us, to our friends and our families and our co-workers, this is Him. This is our God, and who our God is matters to how we live life together. This Trinity is not only at work for us, it's at work in us and through us. In us in the church and through us for the mission, and we're going to discuss those in the weeks to come.